0: Welcome to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast with me Lawrence M. Pofo. This is session number twelve. Welcome to the Digital Mindfulness Podcast, where we get insights from experts around the world on ways that you can create life-enhancing digital experiences. My guest today is Linda Stone. Linda has worked in the technology industry from 1986, first at Apple, then at Microsoft, and now independently. Prior to this, Linda worked as a lecturer at the University of Washington Seattle University, and Seattle Pacific University. At Apple, she did pioneering work in multimedia and publishing between 86 and 1993, and also worked for CEO John Scully on a number of strategic initiatives. At Microsoft, she also did work on online social life and communities between 93 and 2002, and also worked for then CEO Steve Ballmer as VP of corporate and industry initiatives. Linda was also a lecturer at the New York University Interactive Telecommunications Graduate Programme and created a number of phrases that we'll be going into in much more detail on the show, including continuous partial attention, email apnea, screen apnea, conscious computing and the essential self. Her work has been covered by HBR, The Economist, Wired, New York Times, Boston Globe, and many other publications. This is a show that you do not want to miss. So I hope you enjoy this one with Linda Stone. So Linda, thank you so much for for being with us today. Um, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about technology and just how we can humanize everything. But I was wondering if you could just start with sharing a little bit with us about yourself how did you come to be working in this area how far back would you like me to go
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you and thank you it's great to it's great to have a chance to chat with you Lawrence you're welcome so so I worked at Apple on on multimedia technologies and pioneering multimedia in the late 80s and early 90s. And in uh, 1993, at the end of 1993, I moved and started working at Microsoft and in 1994 uh, started a research group at Microsoft that focused on online social life and virtual communities. And while working in that area... One of the things that kept striking me, I was teaching at NYU in the Interactive Telecommunications graduate program, and I would go back and forth between Microsoft and NYU. And when I was at Microsoft, people would have two screens. And on one screen, they'd typically have their email, and on the other screen, they'd have whatever they were working on, their Excel Worksheets or their Word documents or the coding they were doing, and they would shift from one screen to the other and give their full attention to whatever was on the screen they were looking at. And when I would go to NYU, and this was in 1994, 95, 96, 97, to teach an independent study, when I would go to NYU, I would notice that my graduate students who were typically in their 20s or early 30s would have a very tiled screen. They'd have five or six or seven windows open, and then they'd have multiple devices. They'd have a pager. They'd have a cell phone. They'd have all kinds of other devices that they were tuning into. And they would rarely, or it seemed to me that they would rarely give their full attention to one thing at a time. It seemed like they would give their attention mostly to one thing but they would be very tuned in to everything else that was going on and they would rapidly shift to another activity if it seemed like it might be more important or a better opportunity for them. So I came up with a phrase for that. I, I called that continuous partial attention. These graduate students I was working with were continuously paying partial attention to everything they were doing. And I felt that there was a need for a special term for that because most people when they talked about what was happening in our relationship to personal technologies, they would talk about how we were multitasking. And when I think about multitasking, and most people when they think about multitasking, they think of simple multitasking. You're stirring the soup at home, which doesn't require a lot of attention, and your child comes up and shows you his or her homework. Or you're on the telephone while you stir the soup. Or you're tying your shoe while you talk to someone. One task requires some cognition, and the other task is fairly automatic or routine. That's simple multitasking. But what people were doing was different. They were doing more than, you know, two or more activities that required cognition. They were emailing and talking on the phone. They were driving and texting. They were they were doing all kinds of things that, that all had a cognitive load of some sort. Psychologists call that complex multitasking. As I was watching what was going on, I called it continuous partial attention as a way to differentiate between multitasking that was simple or multitasking that was complex when people were only using the word multitasking. So... Continuous partial attention, the other thing that I noticed about that uh, years later is that when people were using continuous partial attention as an attention strategy, they also were often not breathing fully. That That continuous partial attention seemed to contribute to a stress response in the body. So simple multitasking doesn't really seem to contribute to a stress response, but continuous partial attention, and especially continuous, continuous partial attention, paying attention to the phone, the email, the person standing in the door at your office, the other phone, the other email, that, uh, that when we do that endlessly, it contributes to this stress response, and it contributes to a higher level of anxiety and a, and a physical stress response. So so I began to talk about attention. This was, you know, 1997, and people would ask, how do we get our attention back? And they wanted, typically they wanted a checklist. And as I would consider, how can, you know, what are the different ways people can get their attention back? I thought, wait a minute, this isn't another to-do list. Getting your attention back is physiological. There's, there's a lot of physiology to attention. There's breathing that's involved. So I began to talk to people about breathing as one of the ways to get attention back. And ultimately, in uh, 2007, I I noticed when I was doing my work at the computer that I was breath-holding or shallow breathing much of the time that I was in front of a screen. And I spent close to seven months and talked to many researchers and read a lot of the research on breath holding and cumulative breath holding that was related to diving or sleep apnea or other fields where people were looking at the impact of breath holding, uh, either shallow breathing or breath holding. And as I looked at that research and then also did a lot of observing and testing that was very informal of people working in front of screens, I discovered that about 80% of the people that I was observing were shallow breathing or had periods of breath holding while they were working at a screen. And I combined that with the information that I was learning about what happens to the body on breathing, you know, when you're breathing and it's and it's compromised in some way. And I gave that a name in early 2008. I called that email apnea or screen apnea, which is shallow breathing or or temporary breath holding while working in front of a screen. And so all the work on attention and breathing started to come together. And I came up with the phrase conscious computing as a way of suggesting awareness. Be conscious of your habits when you're in front of screens so that ultimately you can be unconscious. But when you're conscious and aware, you can bring yourself back into your body. And when you're in your body, you tend to do your best, most creative thinking. You tend to be more able to go into flow states. When your energy is all in your head and you're in the midst of a stress response, you tend to be more anxious and you tend to be uh, filled with stressful thoughts. I have too much to do. I'll never get it done. I can't believe I forgot to do that. Those are the thoughts that start to come into your head when you're in the midst of a stress response. And when you're really in your body, you can move into... Uh, what are described as these more flow-like states where your mind and body aren't separate. They're not fighting each other uh, for resources because you're resourcing them with breath and energy.
0: I mean, this, this goes on to the second question I was going to ask you, but all of these phrases, email apnea, conscious computing, and continuous partial attention, these are absolutely fascinating concepts that I'm sure lots of people um, have either suffered with or are aware of, but why do you think, Linda, our attention is so badly affected by the way that we currently use technology? Like, Why does email apnea um, emerge and continuous partial attention?
1: So one of the things that happens to us when we're in front of a screen, and as I describe this, I want you to picture yourself holding your smartphone. So picture yourself holding your smartphone. As you hold your smartphone near you, how far is it away from your eyes? Is it the same distance that a book is? Probably not. Is it a little bit closer? Probably. And then are you pecking out a text message or an email with your finger so you're trying to aim for the, uh, for the different keys on your screen keypad? Are, you, um, are your shoulders hunched in? Is your body kind of wrapped around your smartphone as you're typing away trying to quickly respond to that text or email before you cross a street or before you join someone for a meal or as you're rapidly moving from one thing or another? So one of the things that I'm suggesting here is that when we are in front of a screen a smartphone, or even a laptop. One of the things that happens is you you know, after a while, your arms are forward, your shoulders go forward, and you sort of lean into your laptop. When your body is in those postures, what tends to happen is that your chest becomes more concave, and it's harder to get a full breath. You can't breathe optimally when you don't have a posture that makes it possible to breathe optimally. So so we are very compromised in terms of our physical position when we're in front of screens. The second thing that happens is that there's often this sense of anticipation when you open email. I don't know about you, what happens on my screen is a flood of emails starts to pour in. And the first thing I do is I watch them all go by, and I notice, oh, better read that one right away. Oh, that's related to my meeting today. Oh, I should have done that yesterday. So you have this sense of anticipation and planning that starts as you start to see the emails fill your screen, fill your inbox. And with a sense of anticipation comes an inhale. And the exhale doesn't happen until you relax from that sense of anticipation. But for a lot of us, we have that sense of anticipation and we inhale and then we never fully exhale because our posture by then isn't really allowing it. And we're still anticipating the next response to the next email. So there are a number of things that physically happen in front of screens that contribute to this. Now one of the things that I've noticed is that when people are using iPads, they tend to have a different physical relationship with the iPad. So quite often they're watching something on the iPad and the relationship to the iPad is more one of, uh, similar to the kind of relationship you'd have with a book where you still are breathing and you are often still more relaxed. And again, that changes if you're doing something like email or if you're interacting with a keyboard with an iPad. Then it can change and you can develop uh, email apnea or screen apnea when you're in that position.
0: So from, just from what you just said, Linda, this really sounds like you're talking about a form of whole-body computing where whereby the whole person the entire body is really involved in the computing experience well
1: the word embodiment if you look it up in the dictionary it's typically used in the context of how one might embody an emotion to embody joy or to embody grief and I take some license with that word and I use it as um, I use the word embodiment as if it means to contain in your body or use your body as a container for mind, body, and spirit to be fully present in your whole body. And you, you see that athletes who are really great are very embodied. You can see energy in every part of their body. You see how performance artists and dancers and musicians are fully embodied. In fact, if you're watching a musician on the stage, you might see that a less experienced musician, you might only see energy waist up or even just energy more in their arms and hardly anything in the lower part of their body. I sometimes notice this when I'm watching someone uh, play guitar, for example, but when a musician is fully embodied that is they're really fully breathing and their body is a container for the essence of who they are for all that they can be you see that there's energy in every part of their body and I've also noticed that with people who are really great speakers there's energy in their whole body when they're on the stage and speaking It's, you know, you don't sense that the mind is separate from the body, is separate from emotionally who they are. You get a sense that that they're very embodied. So that's the way that I use the word embodiment. And what typically happens to us in the way that we use technology is that we are more in our heads and more aware of our heads than we are of our entire body. And I've really come to believe that the brain is in the whole body. And scientists are starting to understand and realize that there are there are very important cells even throughout our gut that are giving us a lot of information. You can talk to a lot of scientists who say, yes, well, the you know the brain, part of the brain is in the body, but the whole nervous system and every part of us is Uh, is contributing to thought and emotion. You hear the phrase all the time, I don't have a good gut feeling about that or Mm. I have a great gut feeling about that. We often get cues from our bodies when we're embodied that help guide and direct us. And when we're totally in our heads, we often tend to spin around, well, I don't know if I should do this or if I should do that. Let me think about it. Let me make a list of pros and cons. And what we really need to be doing around all these things is not just thinking through our choices, but feeling our choices. And you probably know people who who you get a sense uh, when you're around them, you get a sense that they're very emotionally contained and that they're really in the moment and that their decisions come not just from a sense of logic from their mind, but from a sense of trusting their feelings. It's a combination of all of it. Does that make sense to you?
0: It does. Yeah. So, I think then, kind of going on from this, you've spoken at length about this, about this new concept that you come up with, which is um, the essential self, which leads very on, which, which leads very nicely on from. Um, embodied computing. Could you just share a little bit about that?
1: So essential self, I actually don't use the phrase embodied computing. I think somebody else uses it in a different way. So, So I haven't used that phrase, but I think if you look it up, you might find that it's used in a different way by other researchers. Essential self, I do talk about the essential self. Essential self to my way of thinking is the essential self is being tapped into the essence of who we are at our best. And the essence of who we are at our best is about autonomic resilience. It means that our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system that, that we think of as the nervous system that that goes either into fight or flight, that stress response or goes into that rest and digest state, that more relaxed state that allows us to digest food and rest and play, that uh, autonomic nervous system response in a lot of us can end up getting stuck in a fight-or-flight position, especially if we're spending a lot of time in front of screens. We can end up being quite often... In a state of chronic stress response, whether it's high-level stress response or low-level stress response, where our body is dumping out stress hormones, we're not breathing well, we feel somewhat agitated, we feel anxious. That's what happens to a lot of us when we're constantly on our cell phones or in front of our computers. It's why so many of us really are craving taking a break and going to meditate or going to dance or going to spend time in nature it's really interesting to me that just as our bodies are feeling the impact of our relationship to being in front of screens and being in this state of uh, low level or higher level stress response we are at the same time craving Exercises and activities like meditation or yoga or qigong or tai chi or ballroom dancing or open floor dancing, any of these things, uh, they're all activities that help quiet that stress response and that make us more autonomically regulated and autonomically resilient. They help bring our nervous systems back to a place of better balance so essential self computing or essential self technologies are technologies that support us to to be um to be the best of who we are to be the essence of of who we are
0: so i really want to kind of go along on on this um talking about the essential self because it sounds like even though there are technologies that can support us in, in becoming this opti- most optimised version of ourselves or the best version of ourselves, that there's a lot that actually we can do um, as people using these, these technologies, you were talking about um, yoga and breathing, um, do you think it's a two way thing, Linda, do you think there's actually that we actually have work to do ourselves in addition to using the right technologies?
1: So when I think about essential self, I think about, uh, I think about a broader field, potentially a new field that, um, that, that, that we're calling essential self skills, which are autonomic resilience, emotional self-regulation, embodiment, the ability to embody and use the body as a container for mind, body, and spirit essential self practices and the practices don't need to involve technology at all they range from yoga and breathing practices to tai chi and qigong to meditation and different contemplative practices to different forms of dance can be very helpful in terms of autonomic regulation to more time in nature which is very supportive of circadian rhythms and autonomic regulation in in many instances, to structured processes for questioning stressful beliefs. That can help with autonomic regulation. So essential self-practices are any practices that can help cultivate or support autonomic regulation, autonomic resilience, embodiment, emotional self-regulation. Essential self technologies are in contrast to technologies today that support health by having us count various good behaviors or bad behaviors. Essential self technologies are often passive, ambient, and non-invasive. They might use light or rhythm or pulse or vibration Sound, pressure, light, music, any of those things to bring us into states that are more autonomically regulated, autonomically resilient. And I don't see that most people would need those technologies all the time. Those technologies help us experience those states when we're feeling particularly anxious or when fight or flight state is really, uh, has really overtaken us. And so the essential self technologies can be used either by an individual or by multiple individuals, and they can help bring us back into a more autonomically regulated place. And I, would you like me to give you an example of yeah, an essential? Yeah, please. So, so one example. In fact, the probably the first essential self technology that I was ever exposed to was designed by a woman named Kelly Dobson. She did her doctoral work at the Media Lab and then taught at RISD, and is a is an artist, a researcher. Uh, hardware and software developer, very, very brilliant woman. So this particular device that she designed, she named Omo, O-M-O. And Omo has is a robot with 24 ribs encased in soft plastic. And Omo is the shape of a small watermelon, so round, sort of roundish, shape of a small watermelon though it's about seven pounds so maybe it's a medium-sized watermelon and you set omo on your lap or on your belly and omo has lots of sensors in it and it senses your breathing and syncs up with your breathing remember it's got 24 ribs so it syncs up with your breathing it feels like it's breathing meets your breathing where it is and then it gradually slows its breathing. And because Omo is direct to body, that is you're experiencing the feeling of Omo breathing, just like you would actually with a baby or a cat or a small dog in your lap, your breathing gradually slows down or or meets Omo's breathing as Omo slows its breathing. So it's a it's a way that your body is completely met where it feels safe, and your body is gradually moved to a more autonomically regulated state by this direct-to-body experience. This is in contrast to many devices that we're familiar with today that are on the smartphone that are you know on a screen that you look at you get information about how fast you're breathing you get prompted to slow your breathing down and then you might follow a little ball uphill as you inhale and downhill as you exhale but when you do that kind of breathing with a smartphone to me it often feels like the breathing is outside of me Like the phone is almost like a kind of ventilator, and I don't own the breath myself. So the difference when you have a direct-to-body experience like you do with Omo is that you feel like you own the breath. You are being breathed, and you own the breath. It becomes your own breath, whereas with the phone, it's uh, prompting you. It's more the phone in your head that are negotiating a breath and attempting to teach the body that breath does that make sense
0: yeah yeah it's absolutely fascinating and so this so this omo robot um i don't suppose it's available to purchase is it
1: i wish it were it's in a prototype now and it's something that you know i wish some investor or even a toy manufacturer would get interested in and manufacturer, I'm sure that Dr. Dobson would be very open to working with someone on that. She designed she designed another technology that is also so interesting. I'd love to tell you about it. Do you have a minute yeah, for me to type? Yeah. So this other technology um, she calls the outer womb. And this technology solves something different. When when preterm babies are are born, in order for them to, to be safe, they need to be monitored. And they often need to be in incubators. And when they're in incubators, they're separated from their moms. And so what, what Kelly Dobson did when she looked at this problem was she designed a very comfortable mattress that cups and holds the baby a little bit differently than regular mattress might but the mattress also has sensors and the mattress is connected to the mother the mattress is connected to the mother's body temperature pulse and respiration so the baby is getting all this input directly from the mother through the mattress in the incubator how beautiful is that? That is
0: fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I imagine that with that would help stressed mothers. <laughs> and of course, and it's just going back to is this whole idea of sensors or sensing, you know the the um, optimal state of, of of the human being. So so technologies like that would promote um, autonomic resilience.
1: Yes, and with the mattress. I was describing this to a friend of mine that I was visiting uh, right before giving a talk recently. She was asking me about essential self technologies, and when I told her about the outer womb, she said, "Oh my gosh, Linda! I, you know, every single mother of a toddler yeah. wants that for putting their baby to bed. Yeah. They want that for putting their children to bed so that their children can feel comforted and connected." when they go to bed. And of course, that makes sense. So again, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Dobson would be very open to talking to people about turning these things into products. She's a really brilliant designer. And really, in in my mind, she's, she's one of the most creative and thoughtful designers of essential self technology. She's the person who I go to to really talk about what could this really be because she has such a wonderful uh vision and imagination about the possibilities here
0: so linda just i mean this is the last question but what do you, what would you say is one thing that people can do right now to improve the quality of their relationships with technology i
1: would say set boundaries. I mean, the think about, think about what improves the quality of any relationship in your life. Any relationship in your life, whether it's with a human being or with technology of some sort, does much better when you are, when you have a bounded relationship with it, when you know where you begin and end and where that other person or technology begins or ends. If we had the kind of relationships with our husbands and lovers and friends that we have with our smartphones, it would be a disaster, wouldn't it? Yes. We, are, we, we have a whole self-help industry on relationships with people and how to create boundaries in our relationships with people and so one of the things that would be helpful for us is to learn to set boundaries with technology. When, when will I use it? When will I not use it? When when will I give myself another another possibility for the use of my time? When will I take a walk? When will I stand up and move around? One of the things that I didn't mention in our relationship to technology is that Because we're often sitting a lot, unless a person uses a standing desk, because we're often sitting a lot, our body's ability to detoxify is compromised because while our our circulatory system has a pump, and that pump is the heart, our lymphatic system uses the contraction of our calf muscles to pump lymph through the body. So when we're sitting and we aren't walking, walking is one of those activities that causes the contraction and relaxation of the calf muscles, which causes lymph to flow in your body and to circulate through your body. When we're sitting for extended periods of time, we don't have good lymphatic circulation. And so we think we need to do the master cleanse and all kinds of other detoxification diets because we're not tuning into basic needs of our bodies so one of the best things you can do in your relationship with technology is get up once an hour for five or ten minutes and walk around look out a window do something else have a glass of water and it's it's so easy to sit in front of the screen we can we can print while we're sitting we i mean we can do anything while we're sitting sitting in front of the screen or stand you know standing by a screen we don't need to get up so it's important to remind ourselves that that it's very helpful to actually get up another thing that we can do is just tune in and notice how we're feeling and quite often when I give a talk on email apnea or screen apnea people will come up to me and say well how often should I get up from the computer and I'll Look at them and I'll say, well, check in with yourself and see how you're feeling. And sometimes a person will respond, well, I never know how I'm feeling. And then I look at them and I say, then it's always time to get up. Because if you're in your body, you know how you're feeling. And when you don't know how you're feeling, it's really time to start moving around so that you get back in your body and get a sense as to how you're feeling.
0: Thank you. That's absolutely fantastic, Linda. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work?
1: Thanks for asking. Uh, lindastone.net So that's lindastone.net.net. and my writing is posted there. Every now and then I'll post on the Huffington Post or on O'Reilly Radar on that blog. But for the most part, my things are posted on lindastone.net and I really enjoy coming out and and speaking, and it's just been great to chat with you, Lawrence. Thank you so much for
0: your interest and your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Linda Stone. Talking about some of the things that I know that I myself go through, such as email apnea and continuous partial attention, as well as the amazing essential self technologies, Definitely expect to hear that term in mainstream technology discussions. As always, if you enjoyed the show, then please leave us a five star rating on iTunes, as this helps us to serve more people who'd be interested in receiving this content. We'll be back next week with more amazing guests showing how you can create your best digital experience. Until then, stay safe.